Okay. Welcome back to True Crime Shrine, the podcast where the planets align and three friends chat astrology, true crime, and any other weird bullshit they can fit into this podcast. We are your hosts, Hannah. Meredith. I think I said that out of order. Yeah, that's all right. I was like, it doesn't feel right. <laughs> and we are still Sarahless. Still. For the time being. She will be back, hopefully. <laughs> I was like, where, where you been, girl? I saw her, actually, on Tuesday. Okay, okay. We had lab meeting and she was in the background of Scott's video. <laughs> I was like, I know you. She exists. She's alive. I don't know if she's doing well, but it's fine. It's almost, this is the last week of the course. Okay. I don't know what she's doing after that exactly, but taking a break. Yeah, I hope vacationing somewhere. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, welcome to episode 70. Any business? I have no business. No businesses. Okay, me neither. So we should just jump right into this because I have a big script today. And I am going to bring you the story of the Leoist of Leos. Okay. So this man was a consummate performer, brash. He just had the sheer audacity of an overconfident white man. Okay. All right, so this story spans decades, continents, and episodes, because, because. Because Hannah's the only one so far that's been able to actually read books. Yep, and this one is based on a book. And this is your second two-parter, so this is exciting. Yeah, so this is based on a book, so you know it's probably going to be a long one. We could probably have wrapped this up in an hour and a half, but it took me a a long time to write just because okay. of how the book was laid out. The book was called Entering Hades, The Double Life of a Serial Killer by John Leak. It's very informative, a ton of information, which is great because I think most of the information about this case is all written in Austrian. Cool. So <laughs> that would make this difficult for me. It was just, it's a lot. It took me a long time, like days to write this script. So we're going to split it into two so I get my money's worth out of it and, and then a little break. Hells to the yeah. <laughs> so... There's that. Let's start on July 11th, 1991. We'll open with a solar eclipse over Los Angeles. And astrology bullshit's going to pop up really randomly throughout this script. So here we go. Cool. A, a solar eclipse occurs when the moon aligns exactly between the Earth and the sun. So that blocks the light of the sun from reaching the Earth. Mm-hmm. I did just learn this. A solar eclipse always coincides with a new moon, and a lunar eclipse always occurred during a full moon. Okay. And so eclipses are known as being chaotic and intense. They were described as unpredictable lunations, which I love. Mm -hmm. But they can really shake up your routine, shake up the status quo, and also kind of harbingers of change that might just be lurking right around the corner. Okay. So if we're going to feel fun and witchy because... Which we are. What else are we going to do? Always. We're going to say this solar eclipse marked the beginning of the end for Jack Unterweger. Unterweger. it did take a long while for the end to come. Yes, Unterweger. All right. So on July 11th, 1991, 
At 11.15, the L.A. County Sheriff's Department received a call from a man saying that he had found a body up on Corral Canyon Road in Malibu, northwest of L.A. Ooh, fancy town. Uh-huh, and this had started as a, like, a fun family activity day, and several families had all driven up to Coral Canyon Road so they could see the eclipse. Oh. Sounds great. Could have been fun, but it was marred by the presence of a decomposing body. That'll do it. <laughs> that will do it. Alrighty, so when the police arrived in the afternoon, they found a female body in a state of advanced decomposition. The summer heat was not helping. I bet not. There's a whole like paragraph about maggots that I'll let you just imagine. Actually, I do have one thing to say about maggots. Maybe I'll break it okay. up. We'll see. This female body, an advanced state of decomposition, it was on its back with the t-shirt pulled up to her shoulders, exposing her breast and stomach, but fully clothed on the lower body. Okay. The pockets of her jeans had been turned out and there was no ID was found. Hmm. And the most striking feature was the tightly knotted bra around her neck. Her bra then. Mm-hmm. Detective Sheriff Ronnie Lancaster was pretty positive that this was the work of a husband or a boyfriend, and so the case should be relatively easy to close. Oh, Ronnie. Oh, Ronnie. Oh, Ronnie. It's you not know. always Ronnie. the spouse or the significant other. Well, one of his colleagues did suggest that she may have been a sex worker, but Lancaster disagreed because the location itself was fairly remote, like right on the coastline at least 25 miles away from the nearest location where sex workers would normally congregate. And a sex worker probably wouldn't go out that far for a single john. Like, time is money. And sure. Whatnot. And then did it say, like, what type of clothing it was? Like, maybe that was like, well, hookers don't really wear that. No. Or... No. Interestingly enough, this will be the only one that actually has any clothes left on it. Okay. So most of the time they're completely naked, but... Well, Lancaster was wrong. I guess it's not always a spouse, whatever. <laughs> and so fingerprints ID'd the body as Sherry Long, a known sex worker. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. The coroner estimated that the victim had been dead for four to seven days, but it was hard to nail it down due to the presence of all the maggots. Yeah. Including the liquefied brain. Oh, oh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I told you that that's the, the tip of the maggot iceberg. And that's it. Okay. All right. So cause of death was obvious, though. It was asphyxia due to or as a consequence of ligature strangulation. So this sounded vaguely familiar to the sheriff's office, and they reached out to Detective Fred Miller at LAPD Homicide. So Detective Miller had been called to a similar homicide on June 19th, a month before, okay. in downtown L.A., so, we had 20-year-old Shannon Exley, who unfortunately had a crack addiction, and so she supported her habit by sex work. Mm-hmm. Here's this weird, random LAPD jargon. Women who sold their bodies for drug money were referred to as strawberries. Huh. That's all I had to say to that one as well, but... Did it say, like, why? Nope. Okay. Just that we, we got a strawberry. Maybe because the pokes? Oh, I don't know. It's a, it's a okay. stretch, though. It's a stretch. So that evening, June 19th, before she went out to work, she had actually called her father and told him she was trying to get her life back together. She wasn't there yet. She was 20 years old. Yeah. And addicted to crack. It's a lot. Her body was found in a vacant lot, which indicated that the killer had pre-planned the murder because the vacant lot was isolated and only accessible by a narrow dead-end road that would be hard to see in the dark if you didn't know what was there. 
Okay. And the killer also had to be persuasive enough to convince Shannon to drive out to an isolated place miles away from where she normally worked. Like I said earlier, time is money, and most sex workers just drove a block or two away with their customers and then went back to their spot. Yeah. As with Sherry Long, Shannon Exley's shirt had been pulled up to her shoulders, exposing her breast and stomach, that she had been strangled with her own bra. Shannon was left mostly nude with no ID. A week after Shannon Exley was murdered, so last week of June, Detective Miller heard about another dead girl who was found in downtown L.A., in a freight company parking lot, she was lying on her back under a big rig trailer with a bra knotted tightly around her neck. She was also left nude. This body was identified as 33-year-old Irene Rodriguez. And so Irene had arrived in L.A. two months prior. She usually lived in El Paso, Texas with her common-law husband and their four children. She came to L.A. to visit her parents for Mother's Day, but then she stayed and started turning tricks to support her heroin habit as well. Mm. And then the body, Sherry Long, was found July 19th. So all three bodies had the bras wrapped tightly around their necks. And all three bra ligatures shared the same distinct features. Just in case you don't know what a bra is, the author of Entering Hades describes it as, quote, a cord that runs around a woman's torso with suspenders over her shoulders. (laughs) Thanks, guy. That was written by a man. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus Christ. (laughs) All right. Now that we're on the same page with a bra is, though, here are the the distinct features that all three ligatures shared. Okay. So, each was made from an intimate article of the woman's own clothing. Okay. Each bra was dismantled with a tool, even though it was already lethal without preparation. So the killer had brought up a knife so he could cut the bra, then tart it into this very specific ligature. Okay. Each had incisions in the same places. Each was left around the victim's neck and tied off at maximum tension. And each had a knot holding the ligature in place that was more complex than the usual series of overhand knots. Okay. One might even call this a signature. Yes. Mm-hmm. This may sound just absolutely bizarre, but my bras, for instance, have underwire in them. So, like, was underwire... I just feel like that would... Or if it was, like, a bigger cup size, like, that would be... You have less to work with. I don't know, because see the description of the bra that the author gave us? I'm not sure if he knew either. Fair. They just kind of cut the bra, put straps other places, made a really complex knot, and tied it super tightly. All right. And so, not only were these three bra ligatures unique and identical, these were... Also, the only three cases where the forensic examiner in Los Angeles had ever seen where the women had been strangled with their own bras. Three out of hundreds of cases of women. Yeah. Within a 14-day period, a killer had struck three times, nine days of cooling off between the first and second murder, and five days between the second and third. Escalation. Escalation, you may say. Police braced for a fourth murder, but it never came. Hmm. Detectives thought the killer may have moved on to a different town, but multiple VICAP searches yielded no matches nationwide. So these cases went cold. Did it say at all if there was DNA left on the bras? We'll get to the DNA later. Okay. Keep in mind this is 1991. Oh, that's true. So it's like right on the cusp of the new science. All right. So that was June and July 1991 in LA, California. 
United States of America. Let's go back in time a couple months and go to Austria. And so, on May 22nd, 1999, the front page headline of the newspaper Courier read, quote, Prostitute in Vienna murdered, three still missing, Oh, end quote. So you said we were going back in time a few months to May, but you said 99? Are we still... I'm at 1991, okay. sorry. Are we in the future or in the past? All right, we're back in time. And there's four missing women in Austria. Yes. May 22nd, 1991, this article comes out. And so it's a little complicated, so we'll just go over the chronology of the missing. It started on April 8th, 1991, when Sylvia Zegler was last seen on her corner. Then April 16th, 1991, Sabine Moitzi was last seen on her corner. April 28th, 1991, Regina Prem was last seen walking back to her corner from a hotel. And May 7th, 1991, Karen Aruglu was last seen on her corner. So about once a week, it seems like. Mm-hmm. I was going to look to see if they were all on a specific day. I actually don't know. What they were were all very low-level sex workers who were kind of pushed to the fringes of the red light district. They weren't working for anybody, so they were just kind of looking out for themselves. Okay. No one was really watching out for them, and so they were easy targets who might not be missed. But they were missed, and at this point, four sex workers had disappeared from the same neighborhood within a month. Yeah. That's bonkers. And police began to speculate that these women may have been murdered by, quote, an eerie prostitute killer. Okay. I guess when they're looking for words to fill their column, I guess. I don't don't know what the fuck that's about. I don't know, my friends. All right. So the last disappearance was May 7th. The first body was found on May 20th in the Vienna woods. Oh. So the smell is what led a hiker to the body. Decomposition definitely in process here. Mm -hmm. The woman was naked except for a leotard hiked up around her shoulder. Her body had been posed in an obscene position as one last humiliation of the victim. Okay. She had died from strangulation by her own pantyhose. So the nylons had been fashioned into an elaborate knot and tied off very tightly around her neck. Her jewelry was left on her body, but her clothes and the contents of her purse were distributed in an expanding circle around her. There were no identifying documents, and the body had soil and leaves sprinkled on it, but not enough to actually hide the body. Okay. Ernst Geiger, head of homicide, speculated this was the murder scene, not a dump site. Once again, it's an odd situation. Someone had to convince a sex worker to drive far away from their usual spot into the woods at night and whatnot. So this victim was quickly identified as 25-year-old Sabine Mozzi. So her husband had filed a missing persons report the month before. Sabine was a bakery salesman by day, but occasionally worked as a secret prostitute by night. Okay. Austria being another one of those countries where sex workers are required by law to register with the Office of Health. Yep. She was also a secret prostitute to her husband, so he didn't actually know about any of this. And she had probably got it into sex work because she had developed a heroin addiction. That'll do it. That'll do it. So that was May 20th. The second body was found three days later on May 23rd, also in the Vienna Woods. Okay. And I'm just going to quote my favorite sentence from this book. Quote, A woman looking for her guinea pig's favorite food found the naked corpse of Karen Ergaloo instead. Oh, What is a guinea pig's favorite food? I need to know now. 
And like this woman is such a great pet owner. She was foraging for food for her guinea pig in like the spring. Probably like a fancy mushroom or something. A truffle? Maybe. I'm like, I this woman, amazing pet owner. I'm sure her guinea pigs are very happy. All right, so Karen had been driven 10 miles outside the city, so even deeper into the woods than Sabine. She was a heavier woman, which supported Ernst Geiger's speculation that these were murder sites, not dump sites. It would have been very difficult for someone to drag her dead body out to this spot, so most likely she was forced to walk there. Okay. And Sabine had been relatively new at sex work, but Karen was a pro, who you would expect to be less likely to go off on long drives with her johns. On a side note, I am looking at cute little guinea pigs. We need a palate cleanser. This one says like 10 of their favorite foods. So carrots, green leaf or romaine lettuce, radishes. Oh, I'm sorry. Radicchio. Sorry. Oh. Radicchio. Cilantro, parsley, bell peppers, dandelions, wheatgrass, cucumbers, and kale. Maybe it was a nice, like, fresh green dandelion grass or something growing in the forest in May. Yeah. Well, that was really cute, but back to Karen's body. Okay. She had been viciously beaten. Mm. Leotards with no bra were on trend in Vienna in 1991. Okay. And so... Karen had been strangled by her own leotard, fashioned into the same kind of ligature found around Sabine's neck. Okay, she probably wasn't wearing any nylons or anything. Yeah, she might not have been or something. So this body was posed similar to Sabine's. All of her clothing had been taken from the scene, but her jewelry was left behind. They also found the torn-off fingertip of a rubber surgical glove under the body. Oh. If the killer was going to stick to his pattern, another woman should have been abducted around May 20th. Mm Mm-hmm. But they found that first body instead, and nothing else happened. And once again, the murders and abductions suddenly stopped, just as they would in Los Angeles. This was a return to form for Vienna, which was one of the safest and cleanest cities in the world in 1991. Honestly, did not make the list of 20 safest cities in the world in 2022, but it still looks very nice, and we should put it on our itinerary. Okay, sounds good. (laughs) So homicide was very rare in Vienna. In 1990, there were 50 murders in a city of 1.5 million. 50? Five zero. Holy fuck. That's very small. Yeah. Safe. To compare, in Los Angeles, the same year, there were 983 murders in a city of 3.5 million. I'm not actually 100% sure if that status is just the city of Los Angeles, the count, like, I don't know exactly, but a lot more. Yeah. Most murder investigations in Vienna were domestic abuse cases that turned lethal, so they're pretty easy to solve. Weird random note, because I love them. Mm -hmm. I've also learned, maybe someone from Vienna can tell me this, the Viennese have a melancholy streak and are much more likely to die by suicide than to kill anyone. Well, that's depressing. Yeah. In any case, Vienna homicide didn't have a lot of experience with complex serial murder cases, because they weren't having any murder cases, and I guess you were just dying by suicide instead of murdering. Okay. Which, which, fine. Maybe we should take Vienna off our itinerary. Maybe. We'll think about it. We're going to have to cross some things off our list, because we can't live there all year. Oh, what? Even though it would be nice. That would be amazing. All right. 
On June 3, 1991, Austria's respected magazine of profile published a long-form article entitled, quote, Streetwalkers Die, a series of murders shakes the Austrian prostitution scene. In this article, the unknown killer was compared to Jack the Ripper. Okay. A report published by the Association of Police Inspectors wanted to refer to him as Jack the Strangler, but a mistranslation ended up giving him the moniker of Jack the Struggler, which I love. <laughs> ah. Shit. Oh my god. All right, so on June, also on June 3rd, a reporter for the ORF, I'm going to say ORF, I'm going to think open reading frame, but it's actually the Austrian Broadcasting Corporation. Okay. He arrived at police headquarters to interview Chief Max Elderbacher about the murders. He introduced himself as Jack Unterweiger, a freelance reporter who is currently producing a story for journal Panorama which was described as the highest quality current events radio program in the country. The NPR of Austria, if you will, perhaps. Okay. This, like, whole sex workers dying in Vienna was not, like, kept the tabloids. It was everywhere. Okay. So Jack said that he had gotten this assignment because he had a special rapport with sex workers. He has a special connection with that or special relationship? Oh, let me tell you about the relationship. Oh, God. But this is not true. He told Chief Edelbacher that his aunt had been a sex worker who had been murdered by her last customer in 1967 so he could identify with the working girls and the pain that they were going through the stress of losing all their friends whatnot and the police chief basically admitted that they had no leads in this case quote it must be very frustrating for an officer to so to speak run into such a dead end said jack yes it was oh jesus okay the radio story was aired, and Jack Unterweger also wrote a newspaper article on the murders. He accused the press of creating a crippling aura of fear, saying, quote, Their reporting was aimed solely at satisfying the greedy voyeurism of their middle-class readership, its appetite for sex, blood, and tears. Which I'm just now seeing is kind of a call-out on us. Yeah. <laughs> also a bit rich coming from a reporter. And a serial killer. Yes, and he brought up his dead on again and was like, I'm the only one who understands them. So, you know, he was he was doing that. I am special. <laughs> uh, while having dinner with his wife a few days later, Chief Edelbacher mentioned that he had been interviewed by an ORF reporter. What Chief Edelbacher thought was interesting about the whole thing was the reporter's name, as Jack is not a common Austrian name. Mm -hmm. His wife, though, knew what was really up, telling him, Mensch, Utterweiger is that guy who got a life sentence for murdering a woman and who wrote a crazy book in prison. He was released last year. Oh, shit. Yeah, so. So his wife also is a true crime fan. Mm-hmm. She has to keep an eye on what's happening. Look out for her husband. Although, this has to be the safest place to be a police officer. Right? Jesus. Oh, shit. Okay, well. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Let's meet Jack Unterweiger. He was born on August 16th, 1950, making him a Leo. Uh, World War II was technically over, but it was still a tumultuous time in Austria, which was under Allied occupation from 1945 to 1955. I always learn something historical when I do these. It's great. <laughs> I love history. Jack's mother was Theresa Unterweger, who worked as a waitress and a barmaid. She also had a side hustle of theft and fraud and interspersed with some jail time. Okay. 
The Austrian men were as beaten down as the Austrian women, so the American soldiers began to look very appealing. I bet. As Stephen Ambrose wrote in Band of Brothers, quote, In Austria, where the women were cleaner, fairer, better built, and more willing than in any other part of Europe, the GIs had their field day. Which is a little, um... Gross. Stephen Ambrose, that was a little gross. Mm-hmm. Come on, Stephen. And I want to watch Band of Brothers, but whatever. Maybe you're not thinking of the right one. Anyway, so, in Jack's prison book, which he entitled Purgatory... Oh, shit. Yes. He painted a rather romantic picture of his parents' coupling. Quote, Of my paternity, I knew only a name. The G.I. came from Trieste. His home was in New Jersey. Perhaps he gave coveted dollars or silk stockings for it. Perhaps it was a great but doomed love between the soldier and a girl who was too young and without the means to be my mother. Okay. Probably none of those things. I went somewhere else with that, but okay. uh, Sure, whatever. His mother couldn't keep herself out of trouble, and when Jack was two years old, she was arrested again, and so Jack was sent to live with his grandfather, Ferdinand, in the alpine countryside of Carinthia. Jack would describe his childhood as claustrophobic, and painted his grandfather as a schnapps-drinking, violent man, whom Jack was stuck out in the middle of nowhere with as a kid. I mean, it could be true. Schnapps is a brutal, brutal drink. Well, here's another excerpt from Purgatory. Quote, My eyes burned with the smoky air in the low little room. The women prattled. The men played cards. I was the house and court fool, a slave, educated by my grandfather to be a fraud's accomplice. I sat on his lap, playing dumb. Later, I moved to my uncle's lap and betrayed his cards to Grandpa. I was the ace at his sleeve. His fists were my teacher, and I was a good student. So, that's one s- side. He's definitely a fucking Leo, for sure. I know, are you fucking kidding me? Christ. For a different perspective on Jack's childhood, we have Charlotte Hour. So Jack's grandfather was her stepfather. Okay. And so Charlotte and her brother Fritz grew up in that cottage and had a perfectly fine childhood with Ferdinand. They were both older than Jack, so their times didn't overlap. But Charlotte would often visit and bring her daughter, Gertrude, who was Jack's closest friend at the time. Mm Mm-hmm. And from what Charlotte saw, Ferdinand actually spoiled Jack. Uh, any toy he wanted, Ferdinand would make it for him. Okay. Uh, Charlotte was also upset about how Jack described a revolving door of women coming to the cottage, when in fact her own mother lived there and looked after Jack from 1952 to 1958. Oh, Grandpa. Things got rough around the time Jack turned six as he became a strong-willed, manipulative little boy. So Charlotte's mother toughed it out for a year before she moved out and came to live with Charlotte. According to Charlotte, Jack was then left alone with his grandfather for two months before he was sent to live with Ferdinand's sister. Okay. Ferdinand's wife had just moved out, so he probably wasn't in the best mood. No, and if he's drinking, I mean, I get it. There's probably an element of the truth. There's some here. Yeah. I do not think Jack had to sleep in the same bed as Ferdinand and whatever woman came around, as Jack said in Purgatory. Jack had his own bedroom, so he probably wasn't just, like, in the bed, but... Well, he may have been the little pervy kid that was under the bed. Oh, yeah, he he went there by his own choice. Yeah. Charlotte would tell an ORF reporter in 1985, quote, His grandfather was my stepfather. I lived with the man for eight years, two years longer than he did, and I'm no mur- robber or murderer, nor is my brother Fritz. 
She would confront Jack after he'd been released, but Jack pretended that he didn't know who she was. <laughs> so that that was that. <laughs> All right. The running theme of the book is Jack's mommy issues. Yeah. You know, she never came to save him from his grandfather during his horrible childhood, which may or may not be true. He attempted to find her when he was an adult, but failed. He does find her sister, Anna, who is the aunt who was the sex worker that was murdered by her last customer. Okay. And so this story is included in Purgatory, and Jack describes himself as being overwhelmed with grief when he learns of her murder. And he would have been 17 at the time then. Yeah, about. Jack had a very short career as a thief and a pimp, which ended when he was convicted of- Sorry. <laughs> and a pimp. <laughs> and a pimp. That's like the one bright spot in here because he was convicted of murdering an 18-year-old girl named Margaret Schaefer in December 1974. Oh, Jesus. He was sentenced to, quote-unquote, life in prison. Which is a bit of a misnomer, as under Austrian law, an offender sentenced to life in prison must serve at least 15 years before being considered for parole. And in Austria, murderers sentenced to life in prison typically serve 18 to 20 years. As an American, not enough. Uh, no. Do they even have the death penalty? No, and we'll talk about that later, too. But I'm just like, just don't call it life in prison, then. No, call it... Well, I mean, so we have... I know we do. I don't like it here either. What do they call? What is it? Twenty? I think twenty-five is ours. Like so, twenty-five to life. So you could, oh, yeah. you know, essentially serve twenty-five, or you could serve life. It's up yeah. to you. Yes, and um, sometimes you just get life and nothing. But. Yeah. All right. While in jail, he took correspondence courses on literature and narrative writing. Of course. Can you tell? Narrative. Ah, uh, yes. He's a storyteller. Three years into his prison stay, he started submitting children's stories to the ORF. The Austrian Broadcasting Company would end up airing about 50 of Jack's stories on a children's radio show. He then wrote a play and a volume of poetry. Okay. I brought you one of his poems. Oh, shit. Let's hear it. It's entitled Love Poem to Death. Oh, fuck. Emo little shit. (laughs) All right. You come to me again. You don't forget me. Until the end is the agony, and the chain breaks. Still, you appear strange and distant, and are alive, death. You stand like a cool star over my distress, but then you will be near and full of flame. Come, love, I am here. Take me, I am yours. Good? (sighs) (laughs) I'm, like, not embarrassed about my poetry. (laughs) All right, not impressed. I will say that. Nor am I. I still have problem with poems that don't rhyme, but... (laughs) Yeah. I'm not cultured enough. I'm like, you could write a very nice sentence. I enjoy that, but... Yeah. I don't know if I'd call it a poem. Yeah. All right. So, in 1982, the prestigious literary magazine Manuscript published his autobiographical novel, Purgatory, in serial form. It was printed in book form a year later, and in 1988, it was adapted to the film and shown to the public. Why? They're very emo, right? That's what you said. They're like... That is true. Okay, so this is their thing, maybe. Maybe. Most Austrians missed out on this, but it caught the attention of Austria's intellectuals, who made up a small but influential portion of the population. And they were absolutely fucking fascinated with Jack's story. Of course they were. Whether or not Purgatory is a good book is debatable. It probably isn't, but it doesn't matter. 
What caught the attention of everybody who read it was that it was written by a prison inmate. And so somehow, even in the spiriting environment of a prison, Jack was able to make his voice heard and his perspective known. It was authentic, a real cry, and it had clarity and great literary quality. If you say so. (laughs) It wasn't just intellectuals who got caught up in the drama. He is also a special inmate at the prison now. And he was allowed to give televised readings from Purgatory in the prison auditorium. Readings that were attended by both intellectuals and government officials. Austria's neighbor, they let their cannibalistic serial killer go on, like, staycations outside the prison. So I guess this doesn't (laughs) surprise me. It's not surprising. But why would you allow somebody that much attention? I don't know. Especially a murderer who definitely had signs of being a narcissist even as a child. Yes. Freud was from Austria, so, like... Oh, he studied men like this. Did they not, like, I don't know, seek some sort of psychological evaluation of this dude? They did. This point, late 1980s, the psychiatrists were impressed by him. Why? Is he just... Well, he's a Leo. He's very charismatic. He's very charming. Yeah. He has a certain allure to him. Like, he's manipulative. Yeah. Which I would say not all Leos are manipulative, but, like... If you are, you can definitely play that real hard. Oh, yeah. Especially if you're very charismatic, right? Yeah. It would be no problem. And then, of course, he wrote a book about himself when he was, like, 25, which is dumb time to write your life story. Well, and also his recollection of his younger (laughs) years in that detail, I call a little bit of bullshit on. Oh, I do, too. I call bullshit on a lot of it. But it was authentic and a real cry. In the darkness. Okay. And remember that play he wrote? Uh Well, it was taken to the stage and Jack was allowed to attend the premiere at Vienna People's Theater. Oh, so. Yeah, he got to go out too. (laughs) What the fuck? He wore a tuxedo and talked to reporters saying it was strange that the first time he had set foot in a theater was to watch his own play performed. They very much allowed him to be glamorized, which just oh made God. him even that much more narcissistic. He loved it. <sighs> All right. Jack Unterweger was now a sensitive artiste. As Alfred Kohlritz, the editor of no. Manuscript. <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock had more sense. I know. This, this Alfred would say, quote, At his reading in Stein, which was the prison, he was so tender, and at that moment... We decided we had to get him pardoned. And Peter Humer, a senior ORF journalist, said, quote, Unterweger represented the great hope of intellectuals that through the verbalization of problems, you can somehow get to grips with them. We wanted to believe him very badly. Well, I mean, I agree. Like, if you talk yeah. about stuff, like, you can work through it. But he fucking murdered somebody that no words changed that. Mm-hmm. You still have to, like, take accountability for what you did. Right? Okay. Well, they began campaigning for Jack's early release in 1985, even before the book or the film came out. Anyway, the intellectual elites wrote letters to the Austrian president, Rudolf Kirschlager, asking him to pardon Jack, and they signed a statement that said, Austrian justice will be measured by the Unterweger case. President Kirschlager said, no, we have laws here. Okay, thank you. He was sentenced to life in prison, so he has to serve at least 15 years. He'd only served 10 at the moment. So those are the laws they have, but still. 
Minor setback. His supporters moved their goal to getting Jack paroled as soon as his 15 years were up, which would be January 17th, 1990. Jack would also write letters to prominent Austrians and to the press, like really amping up how his writing has helped him self-reflect, face his demons, and discover who he really is as a person. Which I 100% agree with. It's my main form of therapy, but I don't want to be associated with this man. But... Did he also take any responsibility no. for his crimes, right? So you can't really say that you're bettering yourself unless you're acknowledging the wrong that you've done. So there's no acknowledgement to that. He's just saying, oops. <laughs> and the audacity to just like send letters to like, not just sending a letter to like fucking Jennifer Anderson asking to let you out of prison when you were guilty, when it wasn't like a, when it wasn't like a bad arrest. Yeah, yeah. I feel, I feel like Kim Kardashian actually did something like that, but we'll... Let's we'll not go there. Not. Yeah. All right. So Jack would say, quote, In working on this book, I wrote three different drafts. By the time I got to the third draft, I no longer recognized the person I was writing about as being myself. Through the process of self-analysis through writing, I was freed from the pressure of my childhood, mother, etc. And so, Fine. Jack would also become the poster child for prison rehabilitation. <sighs> so Peter Humer comes back again. He wrote to the director of the Stein prison. As we know, the rehabilitation success of our prisons is not overwhelming. I don't say that to be critical. I mean only that the example of Jack Unterweger as a successfully rehabilitated offender would be a significant and opportune result. Otherwise, one might doubt the earnestness of the state's dedication to rehabilitation. I mean, it's fair, but not this yes. guy. I know. I was like, don't pin your hopes on this guy. Well, he also had support from his prison officials. Court-appointed psychiatrist Dr. Gerhard Kaiser would testify about his favorable prognosis for Jack's future in free society on the grounds that his literary vocation had given him constructive work into which he could channel his energy. And the prison director would confidently declare... We will never find a prisoner so well prepared for freedom. <laughs> or so well prepared to come back. Or will we? <laughs> well, Jack was released from prison on May 23rd, 1990, 15 years and four months from the start of his incarceration. Upon his release, Jack released a statement, of course he fucking did, ah, saying, yeah. that life is over now. Let's get on with the new. All right? Let's. Well, let's. What did this new life entail? Women, clothes, and cars. Okay. Despite being described multiple times as, quote, looking like a little boy, he had a strong effect on the ladies. He also loved flashy clothes. At his first reading in Freedom, he wore a 70s disco-era snow white silk suit with a red rose in the lapel. And he did go to prison in the mid-70s, and he kind of came out with his sense of style and time, still aligned to, like, the 70s pimp. Yeah. I can just see that, too, with, like, the cane and... Oh, my God. In another sign of Arrested Development, the first car that he bought upon his release was the same model of Mercedes that he had had before he was arrested. And he would end up owning six different cars during his first year of freedom and would use the vanity license plate W Jack 1. The W indicating Vienna or Vienna. Or it could indicate that Jack 1, like, I won. Oh, I know. Ugh. Ugh. Blech. All right. Well, Jack would explain away the murder to his new friends by saying, 
At the time I met that girl, I was living at rock bottom, using drugs and alcohol with no money and no home. But I did have a serious girlfriend. This other girl, the one I killed, she really came on to me and something about her irritated me. Something about the way she looked and talked reminded me of my mother. I hit her once and then couldn't hold myself back. I don't know why. I think at that moment, I thought of her as my mother. I wish I could undo it. Okay. Well, interestingly, Purgatory makes no mention of the murder. The book ends with Jack being in prison for stealing a car, not murdering an 18-year-old girl. He wrote a whole book about himself and Purgatory without even admitting to the crime that he was <sighs> there for. Such a fucking son of a bitch. And he did reassure his new friends that he was now on pretty good terms with his mom. She lives in Munich, and I visit her from time to time. I thought he never found her. Not when he was a youth. Oh, okay. I don't exactly know when he found her, but he did. All right, so he kept busy after his release and published two more novels and produced two plays, for which he received generous subsidies from the Ministry of Education and Culture. <laughs> Where's Mar subsidy? <sighs> uh, it can just be beer. Yeah, or the robot cat boxes. Oh my god, the robot cat box. I want that. I just cleaned cat boxes today for the garbage day. <laughs> All right, so he was busy. He also made his way onto the list of possible suspects for the eerie prostitute killer. So let's go back to 1991, move forward a little bit, and we have Chief Edelbacher. So Chief Edelbacher met Jack Unterweger for the first time on June 3rd, 1991, when Jack showed up to interview him. Oh, yes. Which is also such a fucking Leo thing to do. Oh, yeah. Just show straight up. And like straight up just, oh, that must be frustrating for you. Yeah. Hmm. That sucks. At the time, Edelbacher didn't know that headquarters had received a tip on May 31st from a retired police inspector from Salzburg who advised them to focus on a man named Jack Unterweger. Okay. Inspector August Schenner was described as an eccentric old man, and his younger colleagues would say that he could be overzealous and prone to tunnel vision. And so his tip was placed near the bottom of the list. Okay. After learning about who he was from his wife, Chief Edelbacher put Jack under surveillance, but nothing suspicious happened. So Jack appeared to lead the life of a writer and the journalist, seemed to be rehabilitating. You know, he was... Uh, one of the few ex-cons that could start their freedom directly into a new job, a new life. He was successful. He had a lot to lose. Would he risk all of this to strangle a few sex workers? Sounds insane. And Jack did not appear to be insane. Yeah. All right. Well, on June 10th, Jack again showed up at Edelbacher's office. He says. Because why not? And told the chief that he was about to leave for Los Angeles. Thanks. He was going to do a story on crime and law enforcement, and did Chief Edelbacher have any contacts in the LAPD? Chief Edelbacher did not, but he told Jack that he was looking forward to hearing about his research when he returned. Okay. He didn't say anything about the tip, and probably didn't consider the tip to be very plausible at this point as he let Jack leave the country. He had nothing to hold him on, though, either. Sure, but number one, like, over here... He was paroled, right? He served 15 years and then... Oh, yeah. So there's an element of parole. And so, like, you, like, get out of prison, you served your time, but you're still on parole for, like, a little while, right? So you yeah. still have to kind of 
check in or is that just if you get out early? I think he actually had a parole officer too that felt really aggrieved that he had to have one. He was so special. Why does he need a parole officer? But so like here, you would have to check in, like you can still be living your life, but you have to like do weekly check-ins or monthly check-ins or whatever it is. And then they also like check with your, because you're supposed to gain employment. Which he did. But also one of the things is that at least for over here and at least for a friend of ours, (laughs) I have been to most of the prisons in Washington State, (laughs) is that he couldn't leave Washington. Yeah. Like eventually as you go on and you have like good behavior, like you get off parole and then you're free to just assume your life. But like for a period of time, at least there are some rules. I'm curious as to why they, well, I guess number one, he did notify the chief that he was leaving the country, but like. But he definitely didn't have to do that. Like he just went there because he was like, Hey, I'm going. Do you have any pals in LA? Like, it's almost taunting I, him. I want to talk about me more. Yeah, I don't know. That's crazy pants. I didn't even think about that when I was writing this because I was trying to get this into some <laughs> sort of order that made sense. But yeah, why could he just go to America? What the fuck, Austria? Does seem like a reason to keep him. All right. Well, whatever Austria's policies are. <laughs> I know. I'm just confused. I don't know. But Jack arrived at LAX on June 11th, 1991, wearing quite the outfit, which we'll put on the website. But he was wearing white pants, white snakeskin cowboy boots, a white cowboy hat, a Navajo vest, a bright floral print jacket, a gold necklace, and a gold ring with an emerald. Okay. And he was quite proud of this look and twice asked a random passerby to take his picture. (laughs) Okay. He then checked into the historic Hotel Cecil. <gasps> no. <laughs> For such a prestigious writer, literary author, what the fuck is he doing on Skid Row at the Cecil? Well, it's a great location if you want to talk to sex workers and cops. Well, that's true. So Carolina would be the lucky hotel clerk that checked Jack into the Hotel Cecil. He would pay special attention to her, always stopping to talk with her when he saw her at the front desk. He wasn't all flirting, though. Jack had a lot on his to-do list. He wanted to write a radio story about the city's dark side and would need to interview sex workers and police officers. He wanted to write a magazine story about the strong women of L.A., which would focus on Cher, so he needed to get a hold of Cher somehow. Okay. He wanted to interview Charles Bukowski for some reason. Okay. Uh, he needed to pitch his stories to me- movie producers, and he hoped to track down his father. But your father was from New Jersey. Yeah, well, he only managed to achieve this first item. He had a lot of big dreams. So on June 25th, he went on a ride-along with LAPD Sergeant Steve Staples. Ugh. Curiously, he didn't mention anything about sex work and told Sergeant Staples that he was writing an article for an Austrian police journal about LAPD policing methods, since the LAPD had much more experience in these matters than Austrian police. He's a good liar. He is a great liar. So not only is he inserting himself into investigations or just making himself known noticeable yeah known to the police in austria then that's like the first thing he fucking does when he lands in la jesus and that fucking outfit is a leo outfit y'all all All right 
On the morning of June 20th, which would be a few hours after Shannon Exley was seen for the last time, mm-hmm. he exchanged his rental car for a new one. Since the old one, the windshield on the passenger side was broken. He told an employer that a stone had hit it while he had been on the freeway, and that has actually happened to me. But but was it broken from the inside out or the outside in? They didn't have the deets. That was when I thought it was a gunshot. I took my ah, and I took my hands off the wheel. Oh yeah, that's super scary. <laughs> All right. On July first, two days after Irene Rodriguez was last seen, Jack told the hotel Cecil receptionist. Carolina being off duty, that he was checking out due to the poor security as someone had broken into his room and stolen some of his things. Was it Richard Ramirez? <laughs> I don't know. It's a little too flashy. He'd take the gold chain, though. And the ring and pawn them, at and least. And the ring, for fucking sure. Yeah. All right. Well, Jack then checked into the Sunset Orange Motel in Hollywood. On July 3rd, he took a trip out to Malibu in the daytime. Of course he did. Going for a drive. That evening, he drove to Carolina's duplex in Echo Park. Carolina had not given Jack her address, but Jack knew where she lived because he had once followed her home from work. <sighs> uh, Carolina wasn't there, so he waited, but he was disappointed when Carolina arrived in the presence of a Mexican man whom Jack saw as a rival, and so he drove back to Hollywood for the night and pouted. Hopefully it was like a big dude. Not big enough, because the next day, he just so happened to run into Carolina in Echo Park. And they went for coffee together. No. That night, they, quote, made love for the first time. I'm saying made love. That is how Jack recorded it in his diary. (sighs) They spent the weekend together. And on Sunday, he invited Carolina to come and stay with him in Vienna. Carolina took the night to think it over, and on Monday, she decided that she would go with him and quit her job at the Hotel Cecil. No way. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then Carolina would spend the night with Jack in his hotel. At two in the morning, the phone rang, and Jack talked for a long time in German. When he hung up, Carolina asked who it was, and Jack told her that it was just a friend in Vienna. And Mrs. Mueller was a friend, if you consider fuck buddies to be your friend. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, friends with benefits. Yes. And she'll also come back to the story. (laughs) Note the Mrs. Mueller. Oh, okay. On July 9th, he decided he wanted to move to yet another hotel, which he did, and then spent his last week in Los Angeles with Carolina. And then on the flight to Austria, Carolina did have some doubts. You fucking think, girl? Yeah. She really did not know this man very long, and I... 100% understand where she's coming from when she said, quote, Their common language was English, but neither of them spoke it well enough to convey complex thoughts and feelings. Sure. So Carolina had been born in Guatemala. Her native language was Spanish. And Jax was German. And it is hard, I think, to talk in a a second language about some of these bigger things. But, um... Oh, but Carolina decided to treat it as an adventure, and if she and Jack didn't get along, she could just hop a plane and go home. Nice. That's a really long flight, and you've got to be like, oh my god, what the fuck am I doing? Oh, yeah. She did get to see the other side of Jack for the first time when her luggage failed to arrive at the Munich airport. 
Jack talked to an airplane employee and then absolutely blew up at her when she told him that the luggage was in Paris. Carolina couldn't understand what he was saying, but it was very obvious that he was furious and big overreaction to some luggage being lost and then found and like they were going to send it to the next day. They'll be fine. Yeah, they deliver it to you. I didn't you. get my luggage for a week when I went to Italy. Oh, damn. I was washing my underwear every night. <laughs> Hannah's down by the creek with a rock. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, my bag arrived on Christmas Day, and I got to wear new clothes. You're like, Merry Christmas. Which is why I now always pack a change of clothes in my carry-on bag. I learned that actually on my trip to Europe with my grandfather because he knocked my drink all over my white pants and my mom had been the one that was like, it's always really important to make sure you have something in your bag to change into. It doesn't have to be anything special, just something extra. Mm -hmm. I can't even remember what it was, but some rock band t-shirt and like a pair of cutoff shorts. But I had dressed, like, really nice to, like, meet my family. And then I show up and I'm, you know, I'm this, like, 12-year-old fucking American with, you know, no respect. Looks like (laughs) garbage and had been on the flight forever. Anyways. But, yes, it's very important to at least pack some underwear. Underwear. In your... That's the most important. In your carry-on. Yeah. All right. Well, they did get back to Austria. She got her luggage. Whatever. Jack did an interview with an ORF radio show host, and the story, Jack Unterweger, murderer and writer, his lifelong story, was aired on July 2nd, 1991. And it was pretty much just another recount of Purgatory. It seemed kind of pointless. They've already pulled a lot of content out of Purgatory, whatever. Most interestingly is two weeks later, on August 4th, Sylvia Zagler's body was finally found in the woods near the village of Wolfsgraben, five miles from Vienna. Okay. Carolina started to get tentatively comfortable in Vienna. She started taking German lessons from a woman in the neighborhood, and a few of Jack's friends took her sightseeing, although Carolina felt like those interactions were a bit forced. Mm -hmm. She also did wonder why every single one of his friends was a woman. (laughs) Huh. Weird. I know. What? I don't know why. About a week after they arrived in Austria, Jack decided to finally tell her that he had been in prison. So she didn't know this. Carolina was stunned and probably would have been even more stunned if Jack had told her the real reason he went to prison. But he told her instead that he had been caught robbing a bank. And not stealing a car. Okay. And not murdering a woman. Yeah. So anyway, Carolina. Oh, (laughs) man. You know, they lived together. Mostly comfortable. A few times, Jack even spoke of marriage and having a family together. This dream lost a bit of its shine for Carolina after the bathtub incident. Uh-oh. So, Carolina was working outside. It was a sweaty, hot day, and so Jack offered to draw a bath for her. Sounds really nice. Until she found that the bath water was fucking hot as shit. Jack persuaded her to get in anyway. No, no, and no. And once she was in... He stood behind her and put his hands on her shoulders. No. She thought he was going to give her a massage, but instead he pushed her head underwater. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. And then he eventually let her up and acted as if it had been a funny joke. No. A prank. Well, Carolina has it out here because on September 1st, Jack suddenly burst into tears and told Carolina, quote, Something has happened. You must go back to America. And Carolina said, What happened? 
And Jack said, some trouble. Something I have to deal with. You can come back to Vienna after everything has cleared up. And then after spilling those beans, he stopped crying and became really, like, happy and jovial for the rest of the day. Like, immediately. Oh. It was a mood shift. A real awkward one. Carolina flew home on September 5th and dodged a gigantic bullet. Yeah. Do you think that he, like, cared about her to send her away? Uh, Hard to say. I would say he knew things were kind of heating up, and she might have been a little old for him. I don't know if they got back together or not, but, like, if things were heating up and he thought he could get out of it, but he didn't want her to think less of him, so he sent her away. Yeah. And, you know, more like in her mid-20s, like, she grew up in Guatemala. She had some life experience. Okay. So she might not have been as easy to, you know, she did fly all the way to Austria with him, but... Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, after, like, a weekend trust and, like, a week in a shitty motel, and then she just hops a plane. You know, sometimes you just want to travel. <laughs> There's better ways to do that. There definitely are. Why was he just, like, sitting on the cat tree just, like, screaming? Is he? I can't hear him. You will when you edit this. He's singing the song of his people. It's really cute. I love it. All right. Well, retired Salzburg police inspector August Schenner spent his summer wondering why the Vienna police were not acting on the tip that he had given them on May 31st. So Schenner had been reading in the papers about the Vienna Woods killer mm-hmm. slash eerie prostitute killer who was active during spring 1991 and he was reminded of a case that he had handled 18 years ago. I didn't mean to say it so weird, but let's go. (laughs) Okay. On April 1st, 1973, a young woman was found in Salzac Lake, dead and naked from the waist down. Her wrist had been tied with an ornate knot and a unique red necktie. The coroner found the presence of semen, but could not determine whether the sex had been consensual. Her only injury was blunt force trauma to her face, but her cause of death was being dragged into the lake and drowned. Okay. She had gold dental fillings, which indicated that she was a Yugoslavian. The next morning, Mato Horvath, a young Yugoslavian man, reported his wife missing, and he would identify this body as his wife, 25-year-old Marika Hovarth, who had been born near Zagreb, Croatia. And so they had separate plans on March 31st, but Marika never came home. Damn. So the best lead was the necktie, which was one of a kind. And the Moden Steiner shop owner examined his records and determined that the tie had been sold on either March 10th, 16th, or 17th, but he, no one could remember who bought it. And nothing would end up coming of this lead, and Schneider would not get another lead until two years later, in 1975, when he was told about a young man who had just got on a crime spree of sexually assaulting women that culminated in the murder of a girl in Germany in December 1974. Holy fuck. These sexual assaults had similar characteristics to the murder of Marika Hollerarth, especially the parts where he would take them out to the woods and bind the girls' hands behind their backs. One of the women was able to identify Jack Utreveger as her attacker of May 1974. Let's give all the details here. Jack was arrested. However, before things went any further, Jack swallowed a bunch of pills as a suicide attempt and was then sent to a Salzburg psychiatric clinic. Okay. They must... Not have been told that Jack was accused of rape and assault because they released him shortly after he was admitted. And Jack went back on a spree 
which ended with the death of Margaret Schaefer at the end of 1974. Jesus Christ. Jesus. In any case, Shatter now had a name and did a bunch of old-fashioned police work that placed Jack Unterweger in the city on each of the possible three days that the tie that bound Marika's hands was bought. He also found out about a girlfriend that Jack had had at the time, and, and based on her testimony, car accident reports, he found out that Jack went out alone in Salzburg the night that Marika Hovar was murdered, and then suddenly went to Switzerland the following day with his girlfriend, and his girlfriend would report that Jack seemed to be really interested in this case, collecting all the newspaper accounts of the murder that he could find. <sighs> For his scrapbook. Diary. He really likes a diary. Mm-hmm. I do too, but yeah. So Shannon would eventually present his case to the Salzburg district attorney, but it wouldn't go anywhere. Uh, apparently in Austria, you could only be given one life sentence at a time, I guess. And Jack was already serving a life sentence from Margaret Schaefer. Mm-hmm. But Shannon was disappointed because even if he couldn't get Jack a second life sentence, a second murder conviction would have gotten his record. Might have offended his parole. Yeah. It didn't. And time passes on. Mm-hmm. All right, so September 1st, 1991. Summer has passed. Jenner's wondering where his tip is. Jack and Carolina have had weird times together. <laughs> and so that day, the headline of the Viennese newspaper Courier was, quote, hot tip in the search for the prostitute murder. The writer was crime journalist Peter Grolick, who had learned of Jenner's tip from a contact that he had at police headquarters. So Grolick looked into the tip and would agree with Jenner that it is something that should be investigated. But after the police did nothing about it for three months, Grolick wrote this article and disclosed the tip to the public, although he did not reveal the suspect's full name. Did he just say Jack? I don't know exactly, but it is interesting that this is the same day that Jack came to Carolina crying and telling her she, she had to leave. Yeah. September 6, 1991, Jack popped by Chief Edelbacher's office again. <laughs> You remember, he had promised to stop by and tell him about his trip to Los Angeles. Yes, he did. This timing was a bit sus. <laughs> and so Edelbacher put Jack back under surveillance. He needn't have bothered because Jack would come back on October 7th to tell the chief about the new story he was working on about homelessness in Los Angeles and Vienna. Okay. And at this visit, Chief Edelbacher decided it was time to tell Jack that his name had come up on the suspect list for the Vienna Woods Erie prostitute killer. Jack told him that he wasn't surprised because of his past, and he also remembered Schenner and his single-mindedness from back in the day. Okay. Jack was adamant that he hadn't murdered anyone since he was released and he had too much to lose. <laughs> so Edelbacher is understanding and tells Jack, it would help to clear his name if he could provide alibis for the four nights that the sex workers had disappeared. And Edelbach gives Jack two weeks to think about it and go over his records. So Jack did come back in two weeks. His assignment was to present his alibis for the nights of April 8th, 16th, and 28th, as well as May 7th. He failed because all he was able to say was, quote, For the entire months of April and May, I must confess that I cannot offer any alibis. I began keeping a record of my activities on September 3rd, 1991, when I first learned I was under suspicion. September 1st being the newspaper article. Okay. And Jack wasn't arrested at this point. He just didn't get his name off the list. And investigators weren't really anywhere further. But Yeah, I know they need more to go on, but oh, yeah. still, like, he needs to have a fucking shadow 24-7. All right, well, Shenner wasn't the only policeman who saw similarities with the 
eerie prostitute killer, Vienna Woods killer, to cases in their jurisdictions. The town of Graz, Austria, recently had two interesting missing women cases as well. And these women were found in the woods and had been left mostly naked, with their jewelry left behind, half-heartedly covered with branches and dirt. Time is hard, so here is a reminder. May 23, 1990 was when Jack was released from prison, and he settled in Vienna. Mm -hmm. October 26, 1990, Brunhild Masser, sex worker, is last seen in Graz. On March 7, 1991, Elfriede Shrimp, sex worker, is last seen in Graz. And then on April 8, 1991, Sylvia Zegler goes missing, and she was the first of the four Viennese women who would go missing through April and May. Okay. Uh, and Brunhild's story is super fucking sad, because she was last seen by a taxi driver at 12.15 a.m. who knew her. And he stopped and was like, why are you out so late? Most of her colleagues had gone home by this point. And Brunhild told him that, that she was hoping for one last customer, because she wanted to take her children out on an outing the following day, which was national celebration day whatever that is she needed the money she wanted to have a nice day with her kids mm. brunhild's body would be found two months later on january 5th 1991 this was before the vienna disappearances began okay alfredi's body wasn't found until october 5th 1991 and at this point the vienna woods killing had been in the news a lot and the Graz police made the connection okay and so they hypothesized that the vienna woods killer had started in Graz, and after he got away with two murders there grew in confidence, and let himself loose in Vienna. Okay. And the Los Angeles murders, that would happen during the summer, would not be connected to the Vienna or Graz murders for some time. Not surprising. Completely different countries. But the chief had been told... He did. ...that he was kind of specifically surprising. headed to Los Angeles. And so couldn't he have just, like, called and said, Hello. You know what? He could have. Do you have kids that have been strangled to death? By their own intimate clothing. Right? Like, because that was the big thing, right? In LA, they were like, this is rare. So. And they didn't have as many woods as like Vienna does, but the bodies were still found in out of the way locations. Yeah. As much as possible. Shit. You know what? Fine. That is an excellent point. <laughs> well, Jack had cut Carolina loose in September 1991. Nothing really seemed to develop from that original news article, so he started looking for another girlfriend. Jack was extremely good at identifying a woman with low self-esteem, charming her, and then isolating her. Okay. At Take 5, a bougie club, he turned his sights on Bianca Mrock, who had just turned 18. So Bianca also takes notice of Jack at the same time, and astrology randomly pops up here, because Jack apparently wore a gold lion head's ring, and Bianca would correctly ID him as a Leo. Oh. They would make eye contact, but he also seemed absorbed in the conversation with the woman he was sitting next to. And when he looked back at Bianca, she pulled her never-fail move of looking deeply into his eyes and motioning him to come over with her index finger. Jack pulled his never-fail move and basically nagged her. And he smiled at Bianca and then turned back to this other woman. Okay. This was very hard on 18-year-old Bianca. She is a baby. So when Jack eventually ended his conversation with the other woman and motioned Bianca over to him, she came. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they talked all night, and Bianca learned that he was a famous author, and he had this bad boy aura that Bianca didn't hate. I understand. 
I hate it. What the fuck is it about? It? I ha- fuck. Fuck of all. Mm. Bianca had a vague idea that Jack was the poster boy for prison rehabilitation, but she had no idea about the murder that he had committed in 1974 and went to jail for. Perhaps this was because she was one year old at the time. Barf. Jesus. And just to get a sense of how much Jack has permeated the Austrian culture, Purgatory was actually put on the reading list of multiple schools. Bianca had never read it, but even if she did, it wouldn't have mattered because it said he went to prison for stealing a car. Yeah. So she still wouldn't have really known anything. But kids were reading this book as like a, look, you can change type of thing. Uh, I hate that. What Bianca did know was that she was now an adult and was feeling stifled by her nagging mother. So when Jack told her that he was planning to rent the spare room in his apartment, Bianca took him up on the offer. Oh, son of a bitch. She moved in, but it didn't take long before they were sharing his bed. And by December 1st, 1991, she was no longer paying rent. Jack also had a lifelong obsession with wanting to be a pimp. It's come up a couple times. Mm -hmm. He had figured out that Carolina wasn't going to be so easy to persuade into that lifestyle, but he thought that young and impressionable Bianca would be. He took it a little too far the first time when he told her that his income was going through a bit of a lull, and so it'd be nice if Bianca could get some part-time work to help out. And wow, he already got her an interview with an escort service. So nice. (laughs) Bianca went to the interview, but realized it wasn't a hostess position, it was a sex worker position, and she flipped out on Jack afterwards, so smaller steps needed to be taken, so he found her a job as a barmaid instead. Okay. And just after Christmas, the couple walked past a jewelry store, and Jack stopped to look at the rings in the window, and he said, I think that one would look good on you. Will you marry me? Keep in mind, they had been together three months at most. Mm Mm-hmm. Bianca was overwhelmed and said yes. But don't worry, this isn't going to affect Jack's ability to hang out with his side chick, Elizabeth, whom he made plans to go skiing with on Christmas Day because Bianca was working. And that's it for part one. Oh, son (laughs) of a bitch. That's such a great place to end it, though. I know. I was like, this is perfect. Oh, my God. Okay. Uh, All right. Well, like Hannah said, this is one of two. Yep. I'm like, on the edge of my seat. Jesus Christ. Why is this guy getting away with this so much shit? This fucking guy. And I just looked at pictures of him and like, I'm not impressed by any means. He's like a very small man. Yeah. He does kind of look like a child. Yeah. He had to have charisma. Oh, and clearly he did. He also had the gift of like picking out the women. Vulnerable. That yeah. had the vulnerable women with the least self-confidence. Yeah. Probably he had like a radar. Yeah. There she is. We can't give him that much credit, but. Okay, so I only have a couple tidbits for astrology for this week. So this episode is going to air on August 15th. And on August 18th, on Thursday, Venus in Leo will be trying with Jupiter in Aries. And this is a lovely little trine. I need Venus to stop doing things. I know. I wrote this specifically with you in mind as well. So okay, this aspect brings a love at first sight vibe, which I know you're not down with right now. Or ever. Love at first sight is not real. While it can be ideal for romantic purposes, don't forget 
that this could also mean finding the love of a new food or the love of a new crystal. Okay, I could do that. Or love of a new job. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. One of my interviewees asked for me to sign the release form so they could contact my references. So. You should have listed me as a reference because I would have been like, let me tell you. I'd have to admit podcast hosts and they, they might listen to this. Well, I feel after 70 episodes, I could be a friend. You could. <laughs> Even though we still haven't met, fuck you, Spirit Airlines, but we're fine. <laughs> It'll happen. October. Spooky season. And then the last one I have is just Saturday, August 20th, Mars enters Gemini. Dun, dun, dun. Hmm. Mars is the planet that rules action and motivation. It is our warrior side. It is what drives us and propels us forward. It signifies how we defend ourselves and if push comes to shove, how we fight. Mm-hmm. So Mars has been in Taurus since July 5th. So it may have felt like we were in kind of like low power mode for the last several weeks. But this is going to change drastically as Mars enters Gemini. Gemini, do not take any shit. No, we don't. I know this for sure. (laughs) We will all become masterminds, so to speak. And Gemini is going to help us focus. And I know using the word focus in Gemini is hard. (laughs) Fair point. (laughs) But... We can. We can focus, clearly. You edit this podcast I edit this podcast. But so the Gemini energy is going to help us focus on what is important. And it's going to give us the ability to communicate courageously and then fight for our beliefs in a very effective and logical way. Don't hate it. With that said, you should also say goodbye to boredom for the next few weeks. Because Geminis are also very curious, and we are also very excited to explore. Gemini is a tricky bitch. (laughs) Yeah. And our interest may be piqued so often that we may start to lose interest in some things. So it's important to stay on track. Gemini also brings flexibility. So if your plan A isn't working out, It's not going to be hard to come up with a plan B or C or D or even E during this time. That's very helpful for an earth sign who has plans B, C, D, and E, but doesn't want to use them. This is going to be a time where you have that flexibility to be like, you know, if this isn't working, I'm going to try this. It is important to remember that you need to finish projects, even if it becomes challenging, which is challenging for Gemini's. For the most part. But Geminis are like the little butterflies that kind of flutter around different gardens of interest. And it's really important to kind of allow this to happen while Mars is in Gemini because this is going to satisfy the overall need for discovery. It's challenging but fun kind of at the same time. All right. And that's what I have for astrology this week. I'm afraid I might be fully challenged at the moment, but we'll see. Okay, friends, listeners. Hey. 
If you want to connect with us, you can reach us at Twitter, at True Trying, at Instagram, at True Crime Trying, Facebook, TCT Podcast. You can email us directly at truecrimetrying at gmail.com and check out our website, www.truecrimetrying.com. Stay tuned for the second part. Part two. Next week. Yay. Bye. Bye. Music for our podcast was handcrafted by the talented and creative minds of Mike Warren and Pete Ortega. Our artwork was imagined and skillfully designed by the lovely Sarah Guest. As for production, well, they call me post-production. Show notes are available upon request. Just email truecrimetrine at gmail.com. Join us again next week for another tantalizing episode.